continuing in 2 Corinthians, this incredible letter from Paul to the church talking about truths of eternal identity, truths of eternal purpose, truths of who we are in Christ, who we are called to be, who we are meant to be. And so before we begin, if you would please just join me in prayer. Lord, we thank you. Uh, We thank you for the opportunity to address one another in songs. It says in Ephesians that we are to address one another in song. And so thank you that we all had the opportunity to remind one another to consider the Savior and how wonderful he is. Thank you for that. As we continue to worship with our minds, as we engage with your word, teach us, speak to us. May this be from you. May this be for you. May you and you alone be be magnified, be glorified. Get rid of me entirely. Whatever we came through the doors with today that would distract us, that would close our ears, that would harden our hearts to your word, get rid of that. Lord, break us down before your throne so that you may build us to look like Christ. It's for Christ's sake we do this, for his worship, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, So one of the things we we started doing, I don't know, maybe a year ago, um, was standing for the reading of God's word. And this is out of respect. This is not out of obligation. This is not out of ritual. This is out of respect. So I invite you now to stand as we read Scripture, but do so knowing that if you choose to do so, you're doing so recognizing the authority of God's Word, please. And we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 2. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoiced still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. 
But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater, as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. You may be seated. So what's he getting at there? What, what is Paul getting at in this chunk of 2 Corinthians? He references these past troubles, this fear, this affliction, fear without, or uh, affliction outside, fear within. He's talking about the difficulties he's had in previous journeys. He's talking about the relationship. And then he says, you know, I wrote you this letter and it grieved you. And I don't really regret that. For a little bit I did, but, but I don't because of the consequence of that letter. He's talking about what we've talked about at the start of this series, that 2 Corinthians is actually the third letter, maybe even the fourth letter that Paul has written to this body of believers. We have the first one, 1 Corinthians, but then he makes reference to two others that he sent with Titus in the in-between journeys, in the in-between of these two bigger letters. And in those letters, he had called them out for some of their false teaching, what they were accepting. He had called them out for some of their behavior that was drifting from sound doctrine. And we come to, in the middle of this longer section, as he's kind of relaying the history of his relationship with this church, an incredible, incredible, packed into two verses, maybe four verses, depending on how wide you want to go. But packed in the middle there, we have just an unbelievable gospel presentation. What does he say in verse 8? For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourself innocent in the matter. If you're here this morning and you've been a Christian since you were four, praise God, that's awesome. If you've been a Christian for 10 days, if you don't think you're a Christian, you don't know if you're a Christian, if you are decidedly not a Christian, wherever you are, Let these verses be just a wonderful unpacking of either what you believe and let it remind you of what you believe. Let it it be a lesson on what you're wrestling with, what you're not sure you believe. But in these verses, we see an incredible progression of what God desires for us, really what he calls us to, his plan for redemption in his people. There's a difference. There's a huge undeniable, don't avoid it difference between feeling guilty and feeling convicted. The Holy Spirit does not work in vague condemnation. The Holy Spirit does not work in, you know, we'll just generally feel kind of bad. The Holy Spirit works in specific conviction. And this is what it's getting at in this section of this letter. So we're going to look at this progression of godly grief versus worldly grief. What worldly grief leads to, what godly grief leads to, repentance, repentance that leads to salvation, salvation that should, in this last section, this is going to be the challenge for all of us believers in the room, for any believers joining us online. If we followed this godly grief to repentance to salvation, then it's undeniable we should arrive at a conclusion of zeal, of passion. And so let's look at this progression that Paul lays out in his letter. What's he say? He says grief. He talks about godly grief. Friends, sin is not a mistake. 
Sin is not an unfortunate bummer. That's what happens when I go to the grocery store looking for a specific flavor of ice cream and they're out of it. Well, that's a bummer. That's not sin. Sin is, sin is horrific. Sin is an absolutely horrifying rejection of God's holiness, a disobedience of him who called us. We have to understand this. If we are not grieved by sin, if we are not beginning with a place of horror at the sin in our own lives, I'm not talking about, it's easy, it's easy to grieve external sin. You see a picture of a, a two-year-old standing there, unclothed, belly swollen from, from hunger, from famine. It's easy to grieve the sin of poverty. Right? It's easy to grieve the sin that led to the circumstances for that child. It's a lot harder when we have to look at our own sin and say, okay, am I grieved by this? Is this offensive to me? Is my sin offensive and troubling to my heart? Because it needs to be. So if we are not grieved by sin, I would suggest it's because as Christians, we don't understand the nature of our sin and who we're sinning against. Listen to these verses, especially if we're, when we were wrestling with this, if we're unbelievers, if, we're, if we're, we used to be a believer, now we're not so sure. Wherever we are, we have to understand, Christian included, how deep our sin is against a holy God. Deuteronomy 9.16, And I looked, and behold, you had sinned against the Lord your God. Moses is talking about the whole people, the whole gathered collective people. He says, You had sinned against the Lord your God. You had made yourself a golden calf. You had turned aside quickly from the way that the Lord had commanded you. You had turned aside quickly. Christians, before we're tempted to get holier than thou and judgmental. Who thinks they're not going to sin today on the Lord's day? I don't think that. There have been times where I've left the church parking lot and gotten cut off by someone, and I have not had a loving thought come into my mind. We quickly fall into this. We quickly choose this. Consider 2 Samuel. This is chapter 12. We're going to start in verse 7, but what's happened leading up to this passage is David the king, a man after God's own heart. I mean, the only one in the Bible who is titled a man after God's own heart. So this is David, the pinnacle of examples, right? And what's leading up to chapter 12 is David has lusted, and then he has abused his authority to satisfy that lust, and then to cover up the consequences of that lust, he's had a guy murdered. David's not doing so well right now. And so the prophet Nathan comes to David and he calls him out for his sin, but he does so in a parable. He tells him a story and he lays out everything David has done, but he does so without telling David that, hey, I'm actually talking about you. He tells him a story about what this guy did, right? And David is outraged. He's incensed at this external sin. And he says, whoever did, like, find this guy who did that sin and he's going to get punished. He deserves it. He's earned it. And in verse 7, he says, Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would have added to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? David, after listening to this in verse 13, says, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. 
See, sin's against God at its fundamental core of it. It's against God. God had given all of this to David. God had poured out blessings on David. And David says, no, that's not enough. I want this. And Nathan says, why have you despised the word of the Lord? If we don't understand that our sin is first and foremost a sin against the Lord, we won't grasp the true depravity of it. Consider Psalm 14, 2-3. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Psalm 44, 20 and 21. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For He knows the secrets of the heart. See, we can lie to one another about sin, but we can't lie to the Lord about sin. If I said, hey, the next slide is going to be your top ten worst thoughts written out for everybody to see. How many of you are sprinting out the door? Spoiler alert, I'd be the first one. I'm not even going out that door. That door's closer. I don't want my secret thoughts put up on the screen for everybody to see. I can hide my sin from you. I can't hide it from God. You can't hide it from God. You're good? No, you're really not. And I say that because I'm not really good. I'm not inherently good on my own. If there is goodness in me, I'm not talking about new creation in Christ. I'm talking about apart from Jesus. I'm talking about before Jesus. If I am without Jesus, I am not good. You are not good. That's the plain and simple truth of it. What's good? How do you define good? Who gets to come up with the scale of good? Well, I should get into heaven because I'm good. Well, compared to who? Compared to Gandhi? Compared to Mother Teresa? Compared to the people who donate? I mean, what, what is good? If we remove Jesus from the equation, there is no good. So apart from God, you and I are not good. We have those secret thoughts that everybody else might not know, but God knows. And we have to understand the depths of this sin. We have to understand His awareness of our sin, of our brokenness in our sin, of our desperate need for a Savior. Consider Daniel chapter 9, starting in verse 3. If I can turn there. 9, starting in verse 3, Daniel's praying. Then I turn my face to the Lord God, seeking Him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God. Listen to how Daniel juxtaposes who God is and who we are apart from Him. O God, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against Him, and we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in His laws, which He set before us by His servant, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And then finally, you have Jeremiah 3.25, Let us lie down in our shame and let our dishonor cover us. For we have sinned against the Lord our God, we and our fathers, from our youth even to this day, and we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. 
Friends, sin, our sin, my sin, your sin should grieve you. Should grieve you deeply. Should break your heart. Should cause serious lament. Forget looking at the problems in the world. Forget looking at the politicians. Forget looking at the athletes. Forget looking at Hollywood. Forget looking at other countries. Forget looking at other neighborhoods. Look inside and realize the grief of your sin. It should grieve us. But don't stay there. Paul doesn't stay there in this letter. Jesus doesn't leave his message there. God doesn't leave scripture there. Don't stay there in the grief of sin. Recognize the grief of sin. Recognize the horror of sin. But then allow it to be a godly grief that does what? That leads to repentance. Repentance. If you've grown up in the church, you've heard this word. Even if you haven't grown up in the church, you've probably heard this word. What does repentance actually mean? Does it just mean I'm sorry? Hit you in the face. Oop, I'm sorry. Two minutes later, hit you in the face. Hey, sorry about that. Man, I really don't know why I keep doing this. Is that repentance? No. What does repentance actually mean? I love how two commentaries put it. Guys, way smarter than I am said it this way. Walvert and Zuck in their commentary said, a change of mind involving action in accord with God's will. Uh, the ESV study Bible said, grief that comes from God is characterized by remorse caused by having lost God's approval and the consequent resolve to reverse one's conduct and live for God. See, repentance is not just theoretical. Repentance is not just going through the motions. Repentance is not just giving lip service to something. Repentance involves an awareness, right? A remorse, a recognition of I have sinned against God. I have sinned against other people. That breaks my heart. That devastates me. And then there's a resolve to do something. There's a resolve to turn. The word repentance literally means to turn, to turn in a different direction, a 180. So what does it look like? Well, it looks like recognition. It looks like grief. It looks like seeking forgiveness and then a desire to do something differently. Psalm 38, 18. I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. Not, hey, I'm sorry you feel that way. Look, if I said anything in the sermon that offended you, it's, it's on you. So you come to me, I've wronged you, and I say, oh, you know what, I'm sorry you feel that way. No, that's not, that's not repentance. If I've wronged you, I can't then flip it back on you and say, I'm sorry that you feel this way. I'm sorry that you're responsible for this problem. It's not, oh, I'm sorry I got caught. Shoot, if only you wouldn't have listened that carefully, if only you wouldn't have seen what I did, if only you wouldn't have known what I did, then I wouldn't have had to apologize. No, that's not repentance. Psalm 38, 18, I am sorry for my sin. Jeremiah 3, 12 to 14, God is speaking to his people. Listen to, listen to how God describes this idea of repentance. How there's both recognition and follow through. There's both recognition and action. God says, return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt that you rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among foreigners and under every green tree and that you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Return, O faithless children, declares the Lord, for I am your master. I will take you one from a city and two from a family. 
See, it's that recognition. Acknowledge this. Acknowledge the problem. Acknowledge the sin. Acknowledge the brokenness. Acknowledge the rebellion. And then turn from it. Come back to me. Return to the Lord. He says, I'm merciful. I'm gracious. I'm abounding in patience. I love to forgive. So repentance is also not terrifying. Look at these other passages. 2 Timothy 2.25. Paul's writing to Timothy, talking about the people, and he says, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. Repentance brings us to a knowledge of the truth. Matthew 3, 2 and 8. Jesus is speaking and He says, or not Jesus, I'm sorry, John the Baptist is speaking in Matthew 3. And He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Repentance is action-oriented. Repentance is mental. Repentance is emotional. It's, it's all-inclusive. It's a recognition of our sin. It's a rejection of our sin. It's a grieving over our sin. It's a seeking the forgiveness of the Lord, a confessing of our guilt. And then it's follow-through. It's doing something about it. It's showing, hey, I'm serious about this. This is what godly grief leads to. It leads to repentance. Now contrast that with worldly grief. To go back in that passage in Corinthians, what did he say? He says, for you did not grieve with worldly grief. You grieved with godly grief. Godly grief leads to repentance. What does worldly grief look like? If we just looked at what Scripture describes godly grief at, it also lays out for us what worldly grief over sin looks like. This is Genesis 3, 9-13. to Everything we looked at about godly grief, acknowledging and taking ownership of our sin, confessing it to the Lord. See if you see that in Genesis 3 here. Genesis 3, 9 to 13. But the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. See, what's happened leading up to Genesis 3 is God has said, Hey, this is truth. This is good. This is holy. Don't do this. Don't eat of this tree. And then they sinned. They deliberately rejected that. They willfully chose another way. And they sinned against the Lord. So God says, Where are you? What? We used to fellowship together. We used to walk together. Read Genesis 1 and 2. God would walk with Adam and Eve in the garden. He says, where are you? They said, well, we hid. There was fear. There was shame. So now God's addressing the problem face to face, and he says, okay, what, what happened here? And Adam immediately passes the blame. So then God talks to Eve, and Eve immediately passes the blame. It is the exact opposite of everything we looked at for godly repentance. It's, well, if I can just cover this up, no one will know. It's panic-driven. It's self-preserving. It's self-oriented. It's, okay, what can I do to make this as easy as possible for me to get out of this situation? Whoa, whoa, I didn't sin. If, that, if, if he wouldn't have done that, I wouldn't have had to react the way I did. Well, if she wouldn't have done that, I wouldn't have been forced to react the way. It's really their fault. My anger, my lust, my bitterness, my jealousy, my greed, my envy, my, my unwillingness to forgive, it's their fault. It's not mine. Now stop talking about it because I don't like to think about this. That's worldly grief. Consider Matthew 27, verses 3 to 5. What's happened leading up to this in Matthew 27? 
Judas Iscariot has betrayed Jesus, and Jesus has been crucified, and Judas was paid for it. We come to Matthew 27. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. He didn't go to, he didn't go to God with his sin. He didn't say, Lord, I've sinned against you. He went to the people who paid him for it, who he could pass the blame to, and he tried to undo it. Hey, let's pretend like this didn't happen. I don't want any part of this association. This is godly grief, and what's it lead to? What did Corinthians say it leads to? What do we see it literally lead to in Judas's life? Death. When Adam and Eve sinned, it introduced physical death. I mean, consider... Scripture, consider John 6, 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Sin should grieve us. If it leads to fear and shame and let's just hide it, let's just cover it up, let's just pretend like it didn't happen, don't talk about it, treat it like a cockroach, that's worldly grief. That's going to lead to death. There's no healing down that way. There's no redemption down that way. There's no forgiveness down that way. Grief over sin that leads to, Lord, I've sinned against you. I acknowledge it. I am broken over this. Would you forgive me? That is godly grief that leads to repentance. And then where does repentance lead to? What beautiful, beautiful, beautiful end result follows this. That God promises salvation without regret when it is genuine godly grief that leads to genuine repentance friends it is salvation without regret it's awesome i mean the sin is horrifying but the salvation without regret is a merciful gift that is incredible to consider Listen to these verses, Acts 11.18. When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Romans 5, 1 and 2 and 21. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Death to life. Darkness to light. This is God's promised conclusion to genuine repentance. Uh, come on. You talk about grief being turned around? You talk about redemption where we didn't think it was possible? This is restoration like we can't wrap our minds around because we don't have the power to give this type of perfect, beautiful, eternal forgiveness and redemption. 1 John 1, 7-9 But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. 
If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I mean, really just just sit on that for a second. If you're a Christian, if you're a believer, if you know where you're spending eternity, consider what has been done for you. That you earned death. I earned death, hands down, unavoidably. Unmistakably earned death. And I owed a debt, I owed a price that I could never possibly repay. And then Jesus, in his power, in his authority, what's he say in John? He says, nobody takes my life from me. I choose to lay it down. The Bible says God in his great love for us shows it by that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So I earned the penalty for death. I earned what worldly grief should have bought me. And then God in his mercy, God in his love, Jesus in his authority said, no, I pay that price. And when I repent, when I confess, when I turn, I am cleansed from all unrighteousness. Anybody ever had a mortgage payment? How much fun would it be to just call the bank and say, hey, I repent of my mortgage payment? And the bank goes, cool, it's gone. That'd be, I would love that phone call. That's what happened for us in eternity. We recognize the debt and we say, Lord, I've sinned. I've wronged you. I can't repay this. So I confess and I turn. And godly grief leads to repentance that leads to salvation without regret. And so now, for those who are in Christ, for those of us who are a new creation, it's newness of life, man. It's joy. It's peace that passes understanding. Everything that Adam and Eve went through, everything that Judas went through, we don't have to. We don't have to be afraid of God's presence. We don't have to be afraid of that conversation. We don't have to hide. We don't have to cover it up. We can go before the Lord and be broken and be honest, knowing that what does John say? He is faithful and just to cleanse us. I mean, this is, this is a gift like you and I have never known, unless we know it. And then we should live in the joy of it. Right? And so now, where does that bring us? Godly grief that leads to repentance, that leads to salvation without regret. And then what's he say to the church? Because see, keep in mind, this was a church that had drifted terribly. This was a church, this was a group of believers that had abandoned truth. They had abandoned solid teaching. They had gone after false teachers. They had gone in a direction that they were completely wrong in. And they grieve over it, and they repent, and they turn. And then what does Paul say? He says, see what earnestness this has produced in you. See what indignation, see what longing, see what zeal, see what passion. We were at the elder retreat last weekend, and we were going over the four classic God is statements. And I told the guys, my favorite one is, the one that resonates most with me is, God is a consuming fire. This idea of, uh, of just burning with holiness. I mean, seraphim, the angel seraphim, it literally means the holy ones who burn. They burn with zeal before the Lord. And so when I think of what earnestness, when I think of what eagerness, I think of God who is a consuming fire. 
He describes himself this way in both the Old and the New Testament. Deuteronomy 4, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Hebrews 12, 28-29, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So for the believer, for the Christian, for those who have experienced that godly grief, who have repented, who have received salvation without regret, are you consumed? If God is a consuming fire, the question is simply, are you consumed? Are you in the fire all the way? Are you trying to burn, you know, I'll be in the fire this much and this part I'll keep out. We'll keep this over in the wood pile still. No, if God's a consuming fire, are we in? Are we filled with zeal? I mean, these words that were true of the church in Corinth, are they true of you and I? For see what eagerness, what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. We cannot fabricate this on our own. We can't manufacture this on our own. We cannot will up passion on our own. It is produced by the grief that leads to the repentance, that leads to salvation. We are filled with the Holy Spirit. We are called for holy living. God's will is our sanctification. Are we pursuing it? What did we look at in First and Second Peter? Make every effort to increase in these things. The Bible says, work out your faith with fear and trembling. Are we allowing godly grief to produce in us earnestness, zeal, longing, passion, fire, drive? Unrivaled, unmerited, untarnished, unstolen, untainted. Drive for the Lord. God will not share His glory with another. Are we seeking to share our hearts with another God? Or are we given to the same earnestness that defined the church in Corinth? We've talked about this time and time again. What I feel God has placed on my heart, what I believe entirely, what I am absolutely convicted of with unwavering focus I believe God is calling this church, He is calling me as the one entrusted with you for whatever time frame that is. I believe God is calling us to be relentlessly in pursuit of Him. We worry about coming up with so many long sentences and paragraphs that describe, well, here's our mission statement, here's our vision statement, here's our yearly goal statement. And before you know it, you've got a seven-page document and you tell someone like, hey, what's the point of the church? Uh, let me remember the four bullet points. No, I think it's simple, friends. I think when you look at Scripture, when you look at this passage in Corinthians, you see that God's people are called to zeal. And so the way we have communicated that to you all, two years ago when I presented this first to the elders, and I said, guys, this is what I'm called for. This is what I'm called to. Are you in? And then we presented it to you all, and we said, look, this is what we believe we're called to. Are you in? Is this what you want? Is this what you're willing to be a part of? It will take hard work. It will take sacrifice. It will take blood, sweat, and tears. It will take grit. It will take determination. It is a relentless pursuit of God. A zeal like the church in Corinth. A zeal like the early apostles. Listen to these passages. Galatians 6, 9. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. You have a loved one in your life who you've been praying for for years, for decades? Friends, don't give up. 
What if you, what if you were one day, one more prayer away from them becoming saved? Would you push on for one more day? Yeah, push on for one more day. What if you were one day away from transforming your workplace? What if you were one day away from transforming your neighborhood? What if you were one day away from impacting someone's life in an eternally significant way? Would you push on for one more day? Friends, push on for one more day. And if it doesn't happen tomorrow, okay, one more day, 24 hours, you can do it. God says we will reap if we do not give up. That's what this church is going to give itself to. That's what I'm going to give myself to. Consider Philippians 3, 12 to 14. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. I'm not perfect. Oh my goodness. If you're at this church because, hey, we want to be at a church with a perfect pastor, I'll help you find a new one. If you're like, well, we're at this church because we want to be at a church with perfect elders. No, we'll go, we'll go find you a new one. I haven't already obtained this. I'm not perfect. Paul says, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. It is a relentless pursuit of the call of Christ. It is a tomorrow's in the past, let's go forward. It is unyielding. It is not easy. We're going to move at different paces. We're going to move at different rates. Some years might be going great. Some years might seem like a struggle. Some weeks might be going great. Some days seem like a nightmare. We're not pretending like every day is a cakewalk. What we're saying is, God has called us forward. God has called us upward. Uh, I've shared this with you before. I am a very proud, card-carrying member of the Nerd Club. I love the Lord of the Rings movies. I've watched them way too many times. I've read the books way too many times. We just recently rewatched the extended editions, which is like 47 hours long, and it was wonderful. And one of my favorite characters in the movie, uh, King Theoden, and the army is facing, the army he's leading is facing insurmountable odds, right? Like when, when you look at the ratio of their soldiers to his soldiers, mm -mm, the other side's got the advantage, it seems. And Theoden turns to his men and he says, forward and fell darkness. And I like put my fist through the wall every time, right? Like forward and fell darkness, that's the call of the church. That's the call of the individual believer. Forget what the odds may seem like. Because Jesus is with us, and that means the odds are in our favor. Forget what the outcome may seem like. Forward in fell darkness. Jesus says to Peter, you are Peter, I will build my church on this rock, and the gates of hell will not stand against it. That's pressing forward. That's fighting onwards. That's not taking our eyes off the prize. That's a relentless pursuit of the holiness of God, the holiness of Jesus, the glory of Christ, and His mission. Consider Hebrews 12, 1-2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, 
who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Paul says to the church in Corinth, I'm not sorry that my letter grieved you. Because it grieved you into repentance that led to salvation, that led to earnest longing, that led to zeal, that led to passion to live for God, to live for His glory. So church, Christian today, if this is the only time I ever get to talk to you, hear this one question if you're a believer. Is your life marked and defined by an earnestness and a longing for Jesus and His glory, for God's worship and God's alone, for Jesus' mission to reach the lost, and for the edification of His bride, the church? Is our life marked by the earnestness that godly grief produces. It ought to be. It should be. Are we going to do it perfectly? Nope. Are we going to struggle at times? Yup. Are we going to push on? I plan on it. I'd rather have my semi-conscious body dragged across the finish line than stroll across whistling. Guys, let's leave it all out there. Let's leave it all out on the race. Let's run it with endurance. Let's not give up. Let's push on with an earnestness, with a passion like never before. Paul lays it out for the church in Corinth in an incredible way. I mean, let's reread this. And let this either remind you of, of what you have said to be true or let this push you and challenge you. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice. Not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of one who did wrong, nor for the sake of one who suffered wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God, therefore we are comforted. May that be true of the church today. May that be true of us. Worldly grief's exhausting. Trying to fix yourself on your own is exhausting. Trying to bear the weight of all of this on your own, I mean, that's, that's an easy way to burn out. That's crippling. But godly grief that leads to repentance? Well, that means we get to walk in the fear of the Lord. Not afraid fear, but reverent, awe, worshipful of the Lord. That means we get to stand before God in right standing. We have peace with God. Come on, what's the world going to say to that? I've got peace with God. I'm good. Believer, you're at peace with God. You're good. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be overwhelmed. You don't have to be intimidated. We get to say forward in fell darkness. It's fun. It's a privilege. It's a fight, but it's a fight worth giving ourselves to. So this week, as we consider these things, if you've been with us a while, 
or not. Maybe you need a reminder. Look, we hear things. As we talk to you as your leadership, we hear, hey, we don't know what to pray. We don't know how to pray. I want to pray more. I don't know how to pray. So we've said, okay, let's every week, let's apply the Acts model. Considering this passage we read, considering this passage we taught on, how does it lead you to A, adore God? How does it lead you to C, confess to God? How does it lead you to T, give thanks to God? How does it lead you to S, supplication, ask, make requests of God? So as we pray in light of this passage of Scripture this week, just consider those four things. Hey, I want to read the Bible more, but I don't know what to read. I'm not always sure where to read. Okay, this week as we consider this passage, let's read Psalm 51 and Psalm 16 and read them in order. Like not 16 and 51. I know that's numerically backwards, and for some of you that's going to drive you crazy. It's okay. Read Psalm 51 first and then read Psalm 16. As we reflect, how would you engage with someone who wasn't sure if they repented or not? See, it can't just be me and the elders teaching. It can't just be us who know how to talk to people. You all are ambassadors. You've been placed in neighborhoods, workplaces, hobbies, kids' sports teams, wherever, for a reason, by God, very deliberately, for his glory. So if you have a friend, if you have a family member, if you have somebody you know who's like, eh, repentant, I, I mean, I said I'm sorry, does that count? I'm still kind of feeling guilty about it. How would you respond to someone who was wrestling with the idea of repentance, who didn't know if they'd really repented or not? And then remember, as we seek to also know God's word, to meditate on it, not just to read it, but to internalize it, to allow it to be a part of our day in, day out life, let's continue to work on memorizing and internalizing Acts 4.13. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived they were common, uneducated men, they realized they had been with Jesus and they gave glory to God. You don't have to be special. Be common. Be ordinary. Be uneducated. Be bold. Point to Jesus. It'll be obvious. Let's pray. Lord, you are so good. Uh, just contemplating the depths of our sin, the horrors of it, what we have done. Lord, may we never trivialize our sin. May we never make light of our sin. May we never write it off as just a mistake. May we realize the pain of sin. May it grieve us, break our hearts. Any arrogance that is in me, any blindness that is in me to my own sin, tear it down, Lord grieve me. And then in that grief, lead us to repentance. Lead us to acknowledgement. Lead us to confession. Lead us to follow through. Lead us to change, to turning back to you. Thank you that you are merciful. Thank you that you are patient, that you are long-suffering, that you bear with us every time we continue to sin against you. That your grace extends all the more. Thank you that you promise that when we confess our sins, you forgive us and you cleanse us. What a gift. May we never lose sight of the joy of that. And then, Lord, for your church, for your bride, fill us with, with longing. Fill us with earnestness. Fill us with zeal. Fill us with passion. God, give. Give your church. Give Community Bible Church. Uh, we pray for, for the whole church, but, Lord, we pray for this body. Give this body a fire like never before. Overwhelm us with a desire for you and your glory and your worship. Overwhelm us with a desire for the lost. Overwhelm us with a desire for the beauty of the bride. 
It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Everyone, Pastor Sam here. Thanks for joining us for a Sunday sermon. If you're interested in more of the sermons from this series or some of our past sermon series that we've done, you can find them at discovercommunity.org under the sermon file. Uh, otherwise, you can subscribe to this channel to make sure you stay up to date on all our content. Thanks for joining us.